0: down now been up bam down now up bam bam pit down now up bam bam down now up bam bam down up bam bam down now up bam bam down up bam bam Health insurance, Cozy's Own Friends, Ben Weber here. There's nothing more valuable than your health, your body, your well-being. And I'm happy to say that today I won some health insurance from Health First. It, uh, it's been a long road getting this health insurance. I, I'm transitioning out of my full-time job at the New Victory Theater to become a part-time teaching artist. I lose my my excellent Health benefits and so I, I need to to dive into the marketplace and figure out a way to to protect my my instrument, this this vessel from which I deliver the zone to you cozy zone fans, you cozies, you zoners, and so I called up health first. They seemed to have some pretty good deals. I called them up, they said, good, yeah, go to an appointment. Uh, right near your house in Brooklyn. It's right on Foster Avenue. So I was like, great, I'll go. I make an appointment, uh, 10 o'clock in the morning, nice and early, first thing I do. Uh, I go there. Uh, my my health first representative uh, shows up. He He's only identifiable by his health first uh, tote bag, his attache, and uh, a small little ID tag. And the the office where i was directed to is not open yet there's a there's a roll garage roll top that's down it's locked like a bodega can't get in so uh my my representative his name is ibrahim he takes me uh into the local shoe repair shop with his laptop with an uplink that he can uh connect to the health first insurance motherboard i suppose Uh, And this shop is is filled with shit, you know, it's covered in in shoes and guitars and instruments and there's not really any place to sit but somehow there's this strange settee that he uncovers for me and, and I sit and... And we go through it and he's getting calls on like three different cell phones and he calls uh, the state of New York to like, you know, reset my password because I might have made an account. And it's just, you know, all of this bureaucracy. I'm sitting here, I I want health insurance and I'm watching this nice shoe repair man like repair shoes and it's all pretty absurd. Um, and we get to the point where it's time to disclose my income. I was told that I, I needed to bring all this information. So I brought my, you know, my social security card and my passport and, and, you know, all this information. Um, but I just started this, this part-time work and I, I didn't have the proper proof of insurance or rather a proof of, um, of income, uh, and so we have to stop we we like get to the point of like i I get to be insured in this shoe repair shop but but we have to stop, and I have to wait four weeks until I get some pay stubs demonstrating my my income and so so four weeks later, here we are today, I bring in my pay stubs, demonstrating my income, which you know is not is not bad it's it's quite it's quite good i I don't think you know. I really have been doing better than I've ever done in my life. I've never sort of made this much money in a week before. it's It's pretty impressive. I don't have health insurance. I don't have benefits and and other things, you know, the protections of a of a full-time corporate job. but I'm bringing in some money. And so I show Ibrahim and he was you know gonna set me up with this you know meta meta care, Medicaid. I get them confused, you know, a subsidized health thing based on my insurance, and I I end up not really qualifying. I do qualify for like a $59 uh, monthly tax break, which I will take, I'm grateful for. Listen, you know, I'm speaking, of course, as a person who, you know, has a lot of privilege here, who can't afford health insurance, who's making enough to pay for this monthly, this monthly right, really, you know, I recognize that um but we you know we we get all all the things going and uh i choose a, a nice silver plan uh which is good you know a, a pretty high deductible high copays but you know that's that's the gamble and Ibrahim asked me ben do you do you want to start october 1st he he seems like maybe i want to wait a month and and start in november but i'm like no i i i want to be insured my parents Really need me to be insured? Halloween is coming up. I might trip on my dress. He laughs at that. This is a very, what I imagine to be a, a Bangladeshi, uh, Pakistani uh, establishment. Uh, all of the women are in headscarves. The men have orange-dyed beards and, and very uh, lovely circular caps. Um, and, uh, and so then we go. You know, I I'm ready for Halloween. I'm ready to trip on my dress. Uh, I'm insured, so parents, if you're listening, you can rest easy. Uh, I I am, I'm healthy. I'm insured. Uh, so that feels good. You know, knocking that off my list, and it was it was harrowing. I you know, in a moment, I, I wasn't sure if if this shoe repair shop insurance deal was gonna go south. Uh, but I'm I'm glad to say that, you know, from the best of my knowledge, it's it's gone through. Uh I'm insured, I'm safe. And so I want you to take this this feeling, this sense of of relief and calm, knowing that I have health insurance and and take it to enjoy side C of Lisa Lacasio's cozy zone in the altar room. It's gonna be New York City rific. She's coming to visit. You're gonna love this. Enjoy it. There's so much, Lise. John I, I, Ernsberger. I guess we gotta to touch. We got. Can you give us a little axle? Oh yeah. So juxtaposed. So I. I just want to make it clear that like. Like you are a professional obsessive, like yes, you, that's like correct. so, like you, you look at David Lynch at like from all angles. I've like I, mm. I learned so much about David Lynch by just being near you and through like secondhand David Lynch absorption. Like yeah, it's it's pretty like insane. Like it, it's it, I don't really know anyone else on earth who goes in like you go in.
1: Thank you. I mean, that has always been my trademark. I have always really gone in. I can't really help it. And so because I can't really help it, instead, I just go and go and go. Yeah. Um, and in my life as an academic and a scholar and an artist, that has been the most beautiful thing for me. Um, certainly, you know, when we talk about my work on somebody like Roberto Bolaño, that's the heir to my obsession with David Lynch.
0: Heir. Uh, H- E-I-R. E-I-R.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like that, that, that impulse and that crazy, often crush-driven inability to think about anything else like Bologna, yeah. um, became a, a stance and a, a way of, of knowing and learning. And the best thing about having done a PhD is that becoming hardened into a path of inquiry and something that I fought really hard and I believe succeeded in saying is a real way to do real work. And I mean, I believe this is sort of a direct quote from my Bologna essay, but I, it's also just the truth. I believe there's meaning in obsession. I don't think obsession is actually one-sided. I think there is some sort of interaction, even if it's only between thinker and image. Um, but often I, I, you know, I, I believe in metaphysical forms of communication and I believe in like energetic patterns. And thus, I often find that in obsession, we are just discovering and relimbing as opposed to making anew these sort of energetic impressions that exist between us and people who may be long dead.
0: re like adding more limbs. Uh, reattaching limbs? No,
1: no, limb with an N, L-I-M-N.
0: Oh. Re- to,
1: to limb is to go go around the the edges of something, to, to sort of...
0: Lim, like from liminal space? Yes. Sort of that?
1: From the limin, which is, I think, <coughs> Latin for threshold or doorway. Okay, okay um yeah um so yeah so with David Lynch was probably the most fully realized especially because he was an artist who worked on so many different levels yeah and and Axel a big part of that story too I mean so you know if you're listening to this and you don't know this Ben and Axel and I lived together for three years and Sixty seventy second Second Street Sixty seventy second Second Street apartment 21 and um, Axel was my boyfriend for almost five years.
0: Axel and I were going to live together at uh, Court Street, I think. Yeah. Um, and with DC Pearson. Yeah. But then we were thinking, ah, let's... Let's get an apartment. Let's get an apartment. So Axel and I got an apartment.
1: And then I just kind of invited myself in. Yeah,
0: you were living at Greenwich Hotel. I was
1: living at Greenwich Hotel in a somewhat fraught, very abundant, uh, with roommates, dorm room situation. Um. And I got to say, it was one of the happiest things that ever happened in my life, moving in with the two of you guys. That's very sweet. Oh, it was just the best. I mean, I remember thinking this all the time in college, and I'm so glad that I had this feeling and that it was the right feeling. Because I would think sometimes, like, oh, I should go to bed. I'm tired. Or, oh, I should really be working instead of doing this. This always was being with you guys. And I always thought this won't be here forever, and this is the meaningful thing. And I was always right. And it didn't matter if I, you know, went to bed at five because we've been up cackling about like caveman porn or something. <laughs> um, and I remember, like, I mean, I remember whole semesters of college, especially I think the last semester. I had a class at nine forty-five in the morning, and I thought it might have been ten forty-five, and I was just like,
0: oh,
1: how, how, how will one rise in those pre-dawn hours? And scrape it together. Oh,
0: God. I just... And you barely did.
1: I barely did. I...
0: Was it a Czech class?
1: No. It was Sex, Gender, Nature, Culture with Sarah Murphy. It was a good class. Oh, oh my God. I just remember I had this giant 10-cup thermos of coffee that I would (laughs) fill up every day because I was a 22-year-old who had no regard for my body, apparently. And I would just splash it all over myself continually. So when I think about that semester, I just think of, like, smelling of milk and coffee at all times. And, like, insistently just, like, pouring this coffee down my throat. <laughs> and, like, like you know, if you'd, if you'd gone to bed by, like, two, Lisa, you probably would have been fine. Or the day I tried to walk to school and somehow managed to step in a, like closed pole tie that had like a six inch diameter that just like felled me and i tore out the knees of both of my pant legs and like just came home like sobbing like a four-year-old because i <laughs> scraped myself so bad uh new york
0: but so axel
1: axel oh axel what can i what can i say about beautiful wonderful uh, how Axel? how did you
0: begin how did you and axel begin
1: you know axel and i met The thing is, I think we did meet briefly at the same orientation where you and I met, but it really took hold, our connection, in the fall. And I remember speaking with him and Melissa Greenberg. It must have been at, like, the other orientation they did in the fall that we met. And um, the first thing he said to me ever was, I like your top. It looks like something my mom would wear. And that was actually, I mean, in a way that contained, like, all of the beauty of our relationship that is now also in its 13th year. Because Axel's mom, shout out to Denise Domeric, is, like, the coolest lady on the planet. And uh, I wasn't offended by it. But, like, you also don't know when, like, a 19-year-old boy is like, oh, it looks like something my mom would wear if that's a compliment or not. Yeah,
0: I don't think I would ever. I could never say that to anybody. I would never say that.
1: And so we started talking. And I remember just being like, oh, shit. He is so cool. Like, I mean, of course he was like, you know, ab- absurdly handsome, but all- that it was that was like the least of it. He was just like contained and artistic and like he had this really low voice. And I remember thinking, well, I think we had a conversation about this. I was like I, I thought he was some sort of like nighttime graffiti ninja on the streets of LA. I don't know where I was getting that. I mean, I knew he was an artist. Well, um,
0: because of his friend, maybe K'Nek.
1: Right. So he had this great friend, K'Nek. Shout out to Kinec. um, who lives in L.A. and is a dad and is a high school teacher and is like a wonderful person. Oh, cool. K'Nek was also from L.A. And K'Nek was more the person that yeah. I was projecting yeah. onto Axel. But Axel was, was, all, was in two of my classes that semester. He was in Egyptology with me in addition to reading and writing everyday life. And we would talk. And I remember one day passing notes with him in class in Egyptology and writing, like, my favorite words. And one was lacrimose, which is still one of my favorite words. Another one was lathe. And I had no fucking clue what that word meant. But I, like... Lathe? L-A-T-H-E, yeah. Like
0: a... Like the tool? Woodworking tool, yeah. yeah.
1: I don't know. I forget what I thought it meant. But, you know, like a, a ploy that I've used all my life is I just very confidently claim to know things I don't. Most of the time I get away with it.
0: Peripatetic...
1: I do know what peripatetic means. Thank you. Um, (laughs) And Axel really gently corrected me because he like knew about woodworking. And I was like, Oh, and I don't know why I always go back to that. I think it's because that was an early sign of how much Axel also cared about words. And, um, I remember once saying to you, I wish he would just unload onto me. I was talking about secrets and feelings, but you never let me forget that one. Uh, Um, They lived in u Hall next to Palladium. Oh,
0: God. University Hall.
1: I remember one night he came over to, like, talk to me about whatever the fuck, and I was, like, so touched and moved because I was just so lonely all the time in that first semester or year of college. And, yeah, I mean, he just quickly became a really, really good friend, and the three of us were together a lot, and I, I loved your companionship, and we had other great friends like Kate Folk and Melissa Greenberg, and I felt... I felt so happy in that triumvirate and in the spring Axel and I had kind of like a grandiose college freshman like blah I love you blah what's gonna happen type of thing that seems very sweet to me now after a night of just getting super sauce tanked at a professor's apartment Um, and then there was a horrible dinner with Noah and Axel in which Noah God love him I don't know why I thought this would be a good idea, but I was like, let's all go have dinner. And Noah, we were all drunk on like horrible white wine on some restaurant on First Avenue. And Noah was like, look, man, you want her, you just take her. And I was like, blah. And Axel went and threw it up in the bathroom.
0: (laughs) Oh, boy. It all
1: worked out in the end.
0: Jesus. Um, That's a lot. Yeah. Jesus.
1: But uh, yeah, in that summer, 2004, I came out. To visit, well, Axel came to visit me in Chicago first, and I always remember that. That was just like the most amazing, magical, crazy experience. Um, and then I came out here to visit him, and I was like, "Oh wow, this place!" I'd already been here a few times, notably 2001. But uh, yeah, I just remember the quality of the light at dusk and the the endlessness of the space and the ocean and these like meals we would make and the way that everything was suddenly just so like easy and beautiful. All the beauty. Of course it helped that, you know, Axel's parents are artists and lead beautiful, thoughtful lives and that they lived in Venice, Venice then, you know, before the the craze of the last five years really hit. So it was still super nice, but it wasn't like choked with, you know, oligarchs. Um, and, yeah, I just thought this is all the most beautiful, beautiful stuff. Like, I just – I couldn't get over that feeling that everything was so beautiful. And that's always how I felt. I'm lucky in my relationship with Axel. We broke up in 2008. Um, we had – our relationship survived a year of no longer cohabiting with you. Um, which, you know, I, I think I told you once that Kendra and Agam told me they had a theory – That me and Axel didn't last long after we stopped living with you because you formed an important third leg of our relationship.
0: That that makes sense.
1: I think there's some truth in that. I think young people tend to aggregate in complex social romantic arrangements.
0: I think everybody does that.
1: Yeah. And, And we were, you know, Axel was my boyfriend. You were my best friend. But more than that, I always felt like you guys were like my family. And I felt really, really lucky that I got to have that experience because that, and I, I knew that that was a rare experience, especially at NYU, which is a pretty socially atomized place. The older I get, the more and more grateful I am for it every year. Because especially since I teach college now, and I see what college life looks like for so many young people, and my experience was absolutely different from that. Yeah, it was like adult training with a lot of bumpers and pads and training wheels on, but also. The, the reason I'm glad I went to college in New York, the reason I'm glad that I lived with you guys for all of the difficulties that were present in those situations were – I cannot imagine being who I am today if I had gone to a college that had shielded me more from the world that – I mean, I think it would have been really nice. Like, I no no shame on that because I – I didn't want to go to a college like that when I was in high school. Like, it was my worst nightmare to go to some beautiful small liberal arts college. And now I visit these places and I'm like, holy shit, what was wrong with me? Like, this would have actually made a lot of things in my life a lot easier if I had been in a place like this. But my impulse, and normally my impulse is correct, even if the logic behind it isn't really clear. My impulse was that I needed to be in some place that was really close to the surface and hard like New York. And I have always felt that New York shined me up and... That's also why I've never had any sort of romantic fantasy of like, oh, maybe someday I could live in New York. Mm. You know, my joke about New York is I would love to live in New York if I was making $500,000 a year because then I could have a nice middle class lifestyle. Um,
0: It's a dry dry joke. Yeah. It's good.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so I really feel like it did that. And like we confronted a lot of big, deep, scary things in our time in college that for a lot of people, I think, come after college.
0: Yeah, Uh, I feel that way. And just the nature of, like, our education, too, our gallatin mm-hmm. education in which we were not – there was no pre-described pathway for us. And we were constantly responsible for forging our own yeah. path of inquiry, which I think it was huge. Yeah. And, like, that plus navigating all the fuckery of New York City and, and growing up and reckoning with all of the things, you know, that you came with.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I think about it in kind of a paradoxical way. Because, you know, I just finished my PhD and I can split my education into two 13-year halves all the way up to senior year of high school and then 13 years after that. I never took a break between degrees. And so in many ways, I feel like I've been indulged in an extended adolescence or, if not adolescence, apprenticeship. But then I think about those years in New York, which were longer than just the bachelor's, too, because I did my master's right out of college at NYU. And I think about... all of these moments of confrontation and aperture that we experienced together and separately in those years. Um,
0: When you say aperture.
1: Opening like portals, but also bursts and, and breakage in our notions of ourselves. Um, When you broke up with Kelsey, when I broke up with Noah, when I broke up with Axel, when we lived together, when we didn't live together, when I met Farah and, juxtapose these two sort of beautiful universes the MFA and the BA and I always felt and maybe this was just my feeling that there was a slight resentment or if not resentment like a little bit of holding back among my MFA cohort because I had this really entrenched New York life and community and whenever I tried to blend the worlds I always felt like it was kind of awkward in ways it didn't need to be because I just liked everybody and wanted them to be together but I realize now that part of that was also that I was really lucky because I wasn't moving there at whatever age thinking god can i live in new york city and be a writer and like change my identity in this way i was very blessed and privileged to be established in my identity as a writer and to be easy in new york at the beginning of that process um and i i attribute so much of my success there and absolutely in my phd to gallatin i mean the education that we received at gallatin was the most extraordinary success of the meeting of, you know, traditional humanities liberal arts curriculum and sort of innovative pedagogy coming out of the 70s when the school started as the university without walls. And I have always felt, you know, now that I work in college teaching and I understand a lot more about admissions and that side of things, it was hard coming out of my high school I went to Oak Park River Forest High School and I was, I was one of a class of 720 students that had 18 valedictorians, eight of whom went to Harvard. Actually, some of the people who went to Harvard weren't valedictorians. Um, I was ranked 120 out of 720 in my class. I never felt like I was mediocre, but I had a great fear of mediocrity and I was a very one-sided talent as a student. Or not one-sided, but I mean, I, I struggled in math and science. And now I think that even my struggles in math and science were probably part of a narrative that I had made up and that had been impressed upon me for various reasons from an early age that with a great teacher and a little bit more self-confidence I probably could have gotten around but I also think it's okay and I thought it was okay then that I was just really focused on literature and the humanities and history and anthropology anyway all of which is to say it was hard at the end of high school and the beginning of college especially since at Gallatin we were surrounded by people who felt that they were Ivy rejects you know they were like pissed to be at Gallatin because they had really wanted to be at Yale and I remember just always having this like blinking fury at these people because all I wanted was to go to Gallatin and I felt so lucky to be there and of course I had some of those feelings of my own you know like I have so many friends who went to the big ivies or Stanford and and I think they got great educations and I'm really proud of them and happy for them And I even think there's a universe in which I could have maybe gotten into one of those schools if I had had a little bit more self-confidence, but I don't wish that I went there because I went to the perfect place for me. And when I work with students, that's what I want them to have, and I realize how rare it is. Um, You and I and Axel and our friends, all of whom I think really benefited from their Gallatin educations, were well suited to it for the reason that we understood not very much at all but like one or two intrinsic things about ourselves that we were able to take charge of and guide our learning process and that was a place that just rewarded that abundantly and now on the other side of it i see so much meaning in you know <sighs> compulsory first-year curriculums um, or, like, these sort of labyrinthine university writing comp ret programs. But at the time, I hated all of that stuff. And Gallatin was this place you didn't have to do any of that. And I was just lucky because I was the right type of student for that education. When it came time to start my PhD, I felt totally out of my depth with the specter of critical theory. And it really dogged me for a really long time. And in the first... Two, three years of my seven-year PhD, the vast majority of theory that I was calling on and apprehending was just direct from undergrad. And the experience of doing the colloquium to graduate from Gallatin was the best preparation for the process of field and qualifying exams and eventually the defense, because it was like a miniature defense. And in some ways, it was, I don't want to say more rewarding, but more complete as an experience because I really felt like it was this beautiful thrust out into the world. Whereas what can the teleological endpoint of a humanities PhD be other than the realization that all knowledge and pursuit could be revealed as fundamentally empty unless you choose to charge it with, with value. And that's a pretty, that's a pretty gutting empiric victory, even though it is a victory in itself.
0: Say a little more about that. That, uh, How do you do that?
1: If you spend your life, as I have up to this point, in the consideration of not just literature and theory but also the processes that produce those texts and then trying to generate your own texts because, of course, my PhD is hybrid and creative and critical in nature. Yeah. It's not that it strips the meaning out of the pursuit, but it reveals to you the fault lines and the failures in any way of thinking about these tasks and also of any line of ideology. I mean, you become that erudite and, and deep in the history of ideas and thought. How can you valorize or elevate any, any path of pursuit over another? For me, the answer is the total embrace of the personal as intellectual right. and that's my stance but that's not where a lot of people go with it and that's okay but i just i expected to feel this overwhelming triumph having completed my defense mm. and i didn't yeah i felt unfinished and i felt very anxious and scared
0: we- Thanks for listening to Side C of Cozy Zone lead. with me, Ben Weber. This is Episode Fifty. Cozy Lisa Lacasio in the altar room. Stay tuned next time for Side D, and, and of course, do the social media spends. dance around Cozy Zone. Like it's the Cozy Zone ben Foundation page cozy on Facebook. Zone. Follow Cozy Zone on Instagram hey by following me at Ben Weber Projects. Be Follow know, at Cozy Zones on Twitter. Cozy zone love. So thy neighbor like thyself up, keep it cozy everyone A love beautiful you see you next time